Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of Shared Diversity. Today we are interviewing a really interesting guest, a woman in media, a journalist, a role model in the diaspora media and someone we can all learn from when it comes to envisioning and pursuing your goals on every level. At the same time as I'm interested in interviewing her, at the same time I'm really excited as well because she's one of the role models that I have and as well as a mentor in my field, which comes from the diaspora study and uh, looking at marginalized communities uh, through the lens of media and how we can create spaces where there's more engagement and more communication from our sides, how we create media and how we can use the power of our own voices better to change narratives and to change things that we would like to see being changed. Way to put a pause on everything else mm -hmm. and just spend quality time with my mum. Alhamdulillah. So it was, yeah, alhamdulillah, that was good. Where, did she, where does she live? My mum's still in, my, in our hometown, so uh, Leicester. Ah, okay. Yeah, everyone's pretty much moved out except for the two little ones. Uh, and they're not so little anymore, you know. They're the, the youngest one is starting uni. And the second to youngest has uh, finished uni last year and she got a full-time job with the Leicester City Council as mm -hmm. a social worker. So it's kind of I like my mum's becoming an empty nester, <laughs> you know. But it's a bit of freedom as well. Yeah, exactly. I think she deserves a break. I mean, she raised six kids on her own whilst working full-time, studying full-time. So it's kind of like you wow. don't need to have little ones. You know, she's thinking about fostering. I was like, you're a never-ending mother. Like, <laughs> when do you take a break? I swear to God, I was like, it's, alhamdulillah, you know, it's, um, I think that's one of the good things about Islam is that because you're constantly focused on the ni'mah that Ilahi has given you, you're in that space of gratitude where mm -hmm. it propels you to constantly look at, okay, I'm so grateful, what else can I do? What else can I do? You're just in, a, in that constant space of wanting to give back, you know. So I think because she feels that, you know, she, she raised, alhamdulillah, six kids that are all kind of doing okay with their lives, it's, she feels that she can now give that back to kids that who don't have uh, parents that, you know, mm -hmm. can provide them a good, loving home with a structure and a discipline. And uh, so that's where she's, uh, I think that's her next mission. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so alhamdulillah, yeah, things oh, are good. keeping up. Yeah. Was she one of the role models that you had? when it comes to like studying and working because she, you say she studied and worked full time at the same time and raised her kids at the same time? Yeah, yeah. I didn't have any other role model, to be honest. It's mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the kind of upbringing I've had is where, you know, the, there's no limit to your aspirations, you know. So it's, it's kind of like the world is not enough as long as you can dream bigger than what the world offers, you know. Mm -hmm. And because my mom embodied that aspiration, we had a roadmap to follow, you know. So for me, it was it was never a case of thinking in a limited way, thinking that I might come across hurdles. Or it's always about how how else, what else am I aspired by, inspired by, and and how can I follow those things? There's always three principles that you know across our family. Uh, even though like my siblings and I have followed different professional paths, but I think there's three principles that we all have in common, and that is you find something that you are interested in, that you are passionate about, something that allows you to contribute to society in a good way, and something that allows you to have uh, an ongoing opportunity of employment, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. I remember my sister, my, my younger sister, when she was a lot younger, she was interested in perfumery. So she wanted to learn how to make perfume, how to mix it, which is a great hobby. But then, you know, imagine following that through as a uh, as a career path, mm -hmm. being a black Muslim woman. <laughs> you know, so it's like you're gonna you're setting yourself up for unnecessary hurdles. I mean, unless unless you are you are you know someone who belongs to the Gucci family, or it's difficult for you to you know pursue that so i remember she shifted gears and was like you know i'm going to do psychology instead and alhamdulillah she's a practicing psychologist now but that's a that's a big jump from psycho uh, from perfumery to psychology yeah but when you know when you listen to her and ask her you know what what is it that uh that draws you to perfumery it's more about what the the scents bring out mm. in people so she'll say to you something like for example you know when when I moved out of my bedroom, like for the first time, she called me a week later. She's like, Adil, your scent is gone. Now I feel like you've gone properly. 
it's things so for her it's about the association those different scents to give you know to, to people i mean she or she'll text you randomly from like you know she she studied and works in uh in nottingham so she'll text you and be like a woman just passed smelling exactly like you i want to throw my hands on her and say don't copy my sister <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's things like this. I think she was more interested in the human aspect Mm. rather than the actual mixing of uh, the scents, if that makes sense. What is your story? How did you come to what you're doing right now? Uh, How did I come? Um, Well, I I started out having an early interest in communications. So I I was born in Somalia, in Mogadishu, and then uh, the civil war broke out when I was six years old. So we had to flee, and our initial place that we landed was in Holland, and that's where we sought asylum. So between the ages of uh, 6, 7 to 14, we actually spend in Holland. And it's in it's during that period, those formative years, where I got a sense that I can do something with communications. Uh, and it, I was never really given the guidance in primary school in terms of the different um, professional industries that you can follow, the different things that you can do with communication. You know, I.e. become a journalist or, you know, you become an author and, you know, the different forms that you can follow. It was very much a case of, um, you you know, we would push towards a uh, a technical or a vocational path. Mm. Right. So and, and I get and, and now, I mean. As a as a grown up as a grown up adult, I can reflect on why that's the case. But when you're you know seven, eight, nine, ten, you look up to your teachers and you pretty much listen to what they have to say. And if a lot of them say you know don't don't worry so much about communications, you know you've got pretty hair and you've got a really nice skin tone. So why don't you think about being a beautician? Wow. Things like that, you know. Um, so I think my mum realised early on, both my parents that Holland is a great place uh, to find your feet. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you come from a war-torn country, it's a great place to land and, and feel like you can regain your life. But it's not a place for you to realize your aspirations. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's when my mum thought, you know, we need to move somewhere where you don't have a problem with holding on to your cultural identity, your religious identity, whilst integrating and aspiring to whatever you want to become and that's when we moved to Leicester mm-hmm. uh, so Leicester's my hometown that's where I grew up that's uh, pretty much where I call home and uh, that's where I was first able to get a really good sense of what I can do the possibilities of uh, with communications mm-hmm. um, this is where during my GCSEs I took media studies um, I took sociology I took English language and literature and all of my teachers right up, you know, past GCSEs, A-levels um, have guided me to say, you know, OK, so you look like you could do something with uh, radio, with newspapers, uh, maybe even TV. So why don't you try and do work experience with those different areas and see which ones you like? So I was for the first time I was getting practical guidance of what I can do uh, in the areas that I was interested in. Uh, and my first job was off the back of an internship at the BBC, actually. Uh, so I, I did a six-month or a three-month internship, pretty much making tea, coffee, not really doing anything useful. But you get to be, you know, in the midst of the broadcasters and the presenters and the producers, and the buzz was just really addictive. So I stuck with it. Uh, and that's when I got my first job as a broadcast assistant. I stayed with them for about three years, worked my way up to assistant producer and then producer of the weekend shows. Um, and it was a really gr- great experience for, uh, you know, grounding me as an upcoming uh, journalist. And I did that at, at my at university. So my, my first degree and my master's both are in, uh, in journalism and journalism studies. Uh, I left the BBC to then work for the Leicester Mercury, which is a regional newspaper. Was that within your studies? So, no, this was in parallel, mm-hmm. right? So I was studying full-time mm-hmm. and then I was working part-time for the BBC mm-hmm. and then part-time as a community news, uh, what they call a community news correspondent. So you're a roaming reporter, which means you can essentially work your own flexible hours as long as you get two, three stories in per week. Nice. Yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. And I, I, I spend a majority of my adult life as a journalist. How did you get to finance 
your studies in the first place? Was that through your parallel work as well at BBC or? Um, yes and no, in, in the sense that it was, I was able to subsidize some of my income, but obviously it's part-time income. So you can't get all of your expenses covered by a part-time job. Um, but at that time, the good thing is that, and this seems like a long time ago, uh, education wasn't that expensive. So my entire degree cost me 3,000, wow. 3,000 pounds for like three years of, of study, you know, and today in today's world, you can't imagine that. That's true. Uh, which means, and then my master's um, uh, cost me about uh, 3,000, yeah, 3,500. So all in all, I didn't spend more than six and a half K. I was able to take out some uh, grants that were available to people like me. And so that's how I, I was able to uh, pay off my tuition fees. And then my living expenses were covered by my uh, part-time jobs. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And then out of uni, my first job was uh, with The Guardian, The Guardian newspapers. So I was with them for almost two years. And then I was offered a job at The Voice of America in D.C. So I moved to Washington. Uh, I was there for three years. Uh, and that's when I kind of started thinking about looking into media in terms of the role it plays in society and particularly from the societies that I was covering as a journalist, it was mostly sub-Saharan Africa. It was mostly the diaspora communities that come from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, people that are from either immigrant backgrounds, Muslim backgrounds, or both. Uh, and, the, and the different experiences that they have when it comes to their relationship with the media was quite different to the relationship that the mainstream uh, white American or the mainstream white British uh, society has with with the media you know so i felt that i needed to look at what that role entails from a migrant media perspective uh, and and the only way to really do that in depth is by going back to university so that's how i came back to uni and did my phd and yeah i've pretty much been following that research trajectory ever since you have been moving around quite a lot yeah. from Somalia, Holland to the UK, then to the US and back to the UK. How is it to live in different cultures but still find your true self? Um, I think it's... Uh, if if you are grounded, like if you are anchored in, in, in terms of who you are, where you come from and where you're headed, you're really not limited by any location uh, that you move to or where you go to. Um, for me, you know, home is where my mum is that's that's always been the case and I guess that's you know that's always going to be the case so there's no geographical although you know if I was to pick a geographical location it would be Leicester um but it's it's mostly because my mom is still there you know uh so for me it's it's about pursuing whatever I think is the next step for me to grow for me to fulfill what I uh, aspire to be like and to co- the contributions that I want to make. So if that takes you to different places, then you you follow that trajectory. When was that point for you where you said, okay, I know now that I'm grounded in myself? I didn't, I never had one moment. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a tricky question. Um, I don't think I ever had a moment where I, you know, woke up and said, you know, today I found myself to be anchored. <laughs> you know, I think I've just been brought up like that. Um, we've 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 had a, a a very disciplined upbringing at home, but it was always balanced between religion, culture, and society. Uh, my mom's a social worker. She's always been a social worker, but she's one of those people who is more of a community development person rather than you know a social worker that just deals with you know one to one. Uh, cases and so we always had a connection with the community and and giving back uh, as a sign of being grateful for the things that, that you have been given by Allah um, so for me that's it's that balancing act that had being brought up like that that has just been a normal feature of my life it never stood out uh, and so when I became an adult you continue that life because that's what you know you know um, I, I think when I did realize that there there may be um, an, a reason for me to be more consciously in terms of how I apply the balance of my identity is when I first started working in DC. I was I was in the English to Africa section, and so that brought together different journalists from African backgrounds, but also American ones, where everyone kind of it, it, they looked like majority of them were struggling with either uh, holding on to their 
African identity uh, or holding on to their European identity. You know, it's because you see that struggle because people always think that if they, you know, the, the one thing that's missing might be the one that they are most afraid to lose, right? So let's say, I mean, one of my dear colleagues, we're still friends today, is half Russian, half American. And she would emphasize the Russian part all the time, despite the fact that she's born and bred in in the States. She spends some of her time in Russia, but, you know, majority of her life has been in the States. Her husband is, is American, but she will emphasize the fact that she's Russian. And you can see that is from a position of, I don't want to lose that part of my heritage. And so you hold on to it, right? Yeah. Um, so it, it makes you really empathetic when you see the different ways that people are engaging identity. And, I, and, it, and for me, it was a, a real moment of gratification and, and, and uh, gratitude, I, sh I should say, as a better word, for the way my mum brought us up. Because I'm sure she had to sit down and really make a conscious decision of, am I going to raise these kids as Muslims? Am I going to raise them as Somali? Am I going to raise them as English? Am I going to raise them as Dutch? Am I going to make them void of identity and let them discover it for themselves? You know, she had to have that conversation with herself. And I guess the fact that she found a balance between ensuring that we knew our heritage and where we originated from as Somalis uh, ensuring that we uh, were free to culturally be British, but at the same time our religion was practiced every day at home and we went to Quran school and we were taught the, uh, our religion at home as well. Um, and, you know, my mom had to go and do her own studies in order for her to be able to teach us. Uh, and I remember, you know, my mom used to go, she would come back from work and then in the evening she would go to uh, an evening masterclass that she did in Islamic studies with Loughborough University. And that was also that she was equipped with the understanding that would help her to really raise us in, in the way that she thought was going to enhance the complementary nature, right? So it's not going to be just that you become a hafid in Quran or that, you know, you just recite them without knowing what it means, but you really can apply it in a practical sense to the everyday life of, of me and my siblings. Okay. <laughs> so I think that's, you know, that it's the fact that we've had that as a normalizing uh, effect whilst growing up that I've been able to not have an identity crisis as an adult, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So how would you say that your faith in the work you do in mm. media, how did that intertwine with the, with the people you dealt with, with the bosses you had, with the work you covered, anything that you did in media? I think, so there's two aspects to that. One is my individual relationship, as in my relationship with Allah. And that's an everyday thing. So it's it's making sure that I'm conscious of uh, the fact that Allah sees me, the fact that Allah provides for me, the fact that Allah is watching over me, but that also, you know, you you, you don't go completely into just being hopeful and, and, and loving of Allah and focusing on that aspect, also focusing on the fact that he's Shadid al-Aqab. And so that keeps the fear alive so that you don't transgress on the boundaries that he set, right? And the way I see that is it, as a practical reality is that it provides me the hijab that I need in order to navigate life. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's not just the physical hijab, but it's the, the hijab of peering and luring eyes. It's mm -hmm. the hijab of people taking advantage of me. It's the hijab of uh, people being harmful towards me, you know. So the, it, by holding on to Allah, I am synonymously, synonymously protected from the harmful effects that society can bring sometimes, mm -hmm. you know. And then at the same time, by having a grateful outward looking approach to people means I attract those kind of people, mm -hmm. right? So Alhamdulillah, majority of my colleagues of uh, friends of people that I randomly come across, whether it's, you know, at airports, on the streets, in restaurants, are all very polite. Mm -hmm. I, so I get to see the good side of humanity because you take an active stance of being a good human being to begin yeah. with, right? So that for me is the practical application of being a Muslim every day. Right. So then you have the uh, the way that the society sometimes in, ter in terms of colleagues, for example, the way that they then uh, interact with you. I remember when I first came to the States. So, you know, I assume because the UK and the States are, you know, both English speaking and, you know, the culture is going to be pretty much the same. 
I thought that there wasn't going to be that big of a change. And so uh, when I started out there, the, there wasn't so much of a, a problem with the English to Africa colleagues, but much more with uh, the Somali language services that I used to work with. And I remember, you know, they were very traditionally Somali. And so they couldn't really understand who I was. They couldn't figure me out, you know. They were like, are you English? Are you British? Are you Somali? What are you kind of thing, you know. Uh, and I pushed back a lot against that being put in a box. I I really, really detest that. I don't like the whole idea of... Because human beings are so diverse. We're so different. And if we, the only way that we can really... Uh, connect with each other completely and wholeheartedly is is if we embrace our differences it, and that becomes the shared experience it's the shared experience of difference you know so when they try to pigeonhole me uh you know i push back against that and it's it's that friction the everyday friction of you know oh look at the way she's speaking Somali. you know she sounds like she's from and i was like yes i am from the west that doesn't make me any less Somali. It doesn't make me any more British. So I think it's we have to find a harmonious relationship, but through struggle, through mm. that kind of friction that we had. And, you know, we had some really bad conflict at times where, you know, completely based on misunderstanding or miscommunication. Mm. And at the same time, you having to stand your ground to make sure that this person doesn't violate your boundaries. Mm. Uh, and after that, Alhamdulillah, it was, you know, it was quite good for the next, uh, I, I guess, two and a half years. But it was like the first six months was, <laughs> was quite tough. Do you have that feeling from this consciousness about the shared difference? Mm. How do you think, does it display in, in the communities you are in? And how does it display? Well, I mean, from what I've come across, particularly from, you know, fellow Muslims across the world, is that sometimes there's a tendency to focus on that one aspect of ethnicity. So, you know, uh, if you're from a Bangladeshi background, you know, you focus on that aspect. If you're from a Pakistani background, you focus on that aspect. If you're from a Somali background, you focus on that aspect. And the same goes for, you know, our Arab brothers and sisters. So it's, and they see that as the sort of uh, weapon to other each other, right? I'm only going to stick with my ethnicity because we don't belong together. And I think sometimes that, part and again you know when you look at the root cause of it like what causes that people live together and find each other as a form of support system you know in London here I mean you've seen it you know when, when you were living here if you you can go to certain neighborhoods and you can tell immediately who the predominant ethnic group here is you know <laughs> and all of it is because people want to, share, to have that support network mm. that's next door to them right but that can quickly turn into an us versus them scenario, you know, where people have, and it's shaitan, you know, shaitan will try and create arrogance out of everything, you know, uh, make you look like you are superior because of your race or because of your gender or because of your skin color. Um, so those are the kind of things that I think are the tests in our ummah, where we need to, you know, have a daily discussion and conscious application uh, with ourselves that we are Muslim first, First and foremost, yeah. and the the experience that connects us, that brings us together, it is that loving brotherhood and sisterhood that Allah has already implemented for us, and it's part of our fitra. That's your natural state. That's mm. your default state, yeah. right? So you have to go against your default state for you to focus more on being, you know, from one ethnicity. And what I find amazing is that that takes actually hard, that's much more hard work. You have to imagine that community because it's very unlikely that you will meet every single person with whom you share this imagined, mm. you know, nation. It's, it's very unlikely. It's, you know, it's the idea of Benedict Anderson and the imagined communities. What's the likelihood that you would meet every single British person? <laughs> you know, there's millions of us, you know, uh, but you know your next door neighbor. You know your friends from school, you know your colleagues that you work with, right? So it's much more on the humanity aspect that you ought to focus on. And for us Muslims, you know the Muslim commonalities we have because we all share one sunnah, one Quran, one religion, five points, the five pillars. Those are the things that we, regardless of where you go to in the world, all will have in common. Yeah. But we won't know each other's ethnicity and backgrounds. And so if we focus more on those areas, we will have a much more better experience with each other. And like you say, I also have the feeling that a lot of it is about miscommunication, about mm. not speaking up about the shared identity. Mm. And we don't need to over-discuss this is the community we are part of and you're not part of this. 
how important is for you the the power of voice that you have as a woman in the media? It's important in in several ways. One is that what I try to emphasize on is that there's no such thing as a mute person. Everyone has a voice. What happens is that people get silenced, right? Yeah. And so when I often hear about uh, folks, you know, representing the voice of the voiceless, and we're speaking up for those that can't speak, no, people. Unless you are, unless you have a medical condition where you are <laughs> mute, you don't. There's no such thing as not having a voice. What means yeah. is it means that we are being silenced. And so in order to counter that, it means we have to be providing platforms for people to be able to speak for themselves. And that's what—that's the emphasis that I like to give in any of my messages, any of the communications that uh, work that I do, is that we, we need to keep providing uh, and keep pushing for spaces to be opened up so that the, a variety of voices can, can come through. That's interesting. I feel also what you're saying a lot of times is I'm speaking for someone. Sometimes you just have to pass the mic because mm -hmm. that someone doesn't have the platform, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. I remember there was a, a couple of months ago, there was a, a refugee event that was held in uh, Cardiff in Wales. Now, I, I used to study in Cardiff, so I've lived there for, for about four years. I'm quite familiar with the city and I still keep up with the happenings over there. Sometimes I go there for events and things that are mm -hmm. um, of, of relevance that I'm interested in. Now, one of the things that I found fascinating of that, of that particular event is that, you know, the intention is good. So that's the thing you like, you know, when you, when you focus on the, the surface level of what informs these kinds of events, it really is from a good place. So they are the campaigners that are focused on the hashtag refugees are welcome, folks that propagate this idea of refugees not being kept in, in camps, but, you know, finding homes that would be willing to host them until they can secure, a, you know, a trajectory of life for themselves. Uh, in these new spaces, you know, whether it is that they are granted asylum or whether it is that they uh, have some form of citizenship that uh, that they can pursue. Uh, so, the, the, you know, the, the campaigning for those, that kind of uh, lifestyle to be adopted, that, those kind of policies to be adopted for refugees is is a great example of how humanity can step in to, mm. to support their fellow humanity, uh, their, their fellow, fellow human beings. Right. But what I then find amazing is how that campaign, those kind of processes can start from a good place, but then become hijacked or become uh, distorted halfway through, right? So this event that I attended uh, was organized by the, you know, uh, campaigners of refugees are welcome. Uh, they were talking about how some of the refugees that were resettled in Wales had uh, found homes and neighborhoods that were welcoming them uh, that would help them integrate into into Wales into the big cities that they were relocated uh, like Swansea and Cardiff and uh, and they were talking about the different experience the lived experience that they're having uh, how they are you know coping with things like figuring out how to get groceries and uh, understanding the street signs and things like that and someone asked in the audience um, well, where are the people that you're talking about because you know they're giving these accounts. There's two campaigners who were giving this, these accounts of the you know the refugees that had been resettled in their neighborhood, and they said, "Oh, yeah, they couldn't make it. We came here to speak on behalf of them because one of them couldn't leave her children. There was no babysitter, and the other one didn't have transportation. So we figured we would come here and speak on their behalf. And in fact, we have a poem that one of them wrote, and we'd like to read it out." I mean, it's <laughs> it's the things like that, you know, that kind of grind on you. Just pay for the transport. Exactly. Exactly. That's literally what I say. Why don't you go and babysit their children so that they can come here? And in fact, the other one who can't get here because they don't have transport. How about you get that one an Uber? Get the Uber to pick up the one with the children. You babysit the child. And both of them can come to the event and speak for themselves. Why do you feel the need that you have to be their voice? And that's what I mean by silencing, you know. It's not the physical, I'm holding down, you know, I'm shutting down your mouth. But it's the fact that those people are 
you know, not even given a platform where they can speak. I mean, others were uh, talking about, yes, you know, but those the, those things, they sound all nice and, and great. But in practical in practice, um, you know, people have language barriers and they won't be able to speak. So even if they were to attend uh, events like this, like how are they going to communicate with you? And I was like, how on earth do you think globally people that speak different languages? I mean, they, I gave them an example of uh, a football team. You know where they, you know, the sports is big over this. I was like, how do you think a, an Italian manager it comes in and manages an English team in the Premier League without him speaking English? There's such thing called translation interpreters. People can still communicate with each other. You don't have to physically put up barriers to ne- to not get people. Uh, to speak for themselves, you know. So it, you can see that there is good intention. You can see that there is um, some, perhaps a bit of fear of uh, letting go of control. So if you are able to manage this event and control it the way that you want it to, then it gives you, you know, certainty of outcome and uh, it gives you uh, a trajectory of the way you envision things to go, Right. But you can't control another human being and what they will say. Exactly. I wanted to just ask that because apart from the silencing is also the taking the name, speaking for the mm. name, but then making up your own story. Yeah, exactly. And the own way you you relate this and the w- own goal that you have in mind. Because yeah. you probably won't have the same intention as the person speaking for themselves. How do you navigate that in, in media? Because of a lot of times you might have an interview or you might speak to a person about an issue, mm. but then... It is being recited like out of context with a different title in a different with a way different goal and target market that they have in mind. Mm. How do you navigate these things of of not letting the honesty out, mm. but bringing your name in and what you might have said and spinning it around how they want to want to portray it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is where research really comes in. This is where research is very important because. when you study the patterns of this voicelessness uh, aspect and you, you know, you look at the patterns of how things are framed in order to keep certain communities excluded and to keep them out, you can see the set, you know, the same language patterns repeating itself. Right. So you have, uh, you know, the, the idea of, um, you know, branding someone as being helpless, as being victim, uh, as being, uh, you know, someone who is powerless, You know, all of those are code words that may initially signal a humane kind of, oh, we are empathetic towards those victims. You know, it signals that to begin with. And so it sounds good. But when you dig deeper, it means that because they are victims and they are helpless, I am going to help them. Whoever it is that is speaking and, you know, uh, that is uh, using these narratives of Uh, helplessness and in, in the way that they and and it's and you see that not just with the media you see that in communications in the NGO world in the developing world you know the way that they use development um, programs it's always you know these are the powerless communities these are the powerless people and we have to help them and so you then as the viewer as the person who's communicating with me come and support me help them become less powerful Right. Mm. So it's it's about two things. It's about one, ensuring that I stay in control as the middle person and therefore I am in control of the frame. I'm in control of the narrative and I'm in control of the outcome. Right. And secondly, it's about uh, perpetuating this mindset of dependency. So if if you have a group of people who are constantly over and over again told that they are powerless, that they are vulnerable, you know it's it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy so those you know groups will then accept that they are powerless and accept that they are uh, vulnerable right uh, and so it can the cycle continues right so for me what is important is that whenever we have and by we i mean those of us that are media practitioners that are that are scholars who practice within the media media and communication fields that we that we speak out against these things and we show alternative paths because it's all nice and well to speak out and say you know this is wrong you shouldn't be framing people like this and you should give them their own platforms let them speak for themselves and whatever the outcome is is the outcome 
you don't have to be in control of that, right? Just like how you wouldn't want the outcome of your actions to be controlled, you have to allow that sense of humanity uh, that this person is equal to you and therefore worthy of the same, uh, you know, opportunities and, and ability to speak for themselves as you are. So it's about speaking out about that, but also showcasing uh, different alternative paths that people can take. So one of the areas that I focus on is diasporic media, alternative media, community media. And what I like about those areas is that people have already shown people from migrant backgrounds, from diaspora backgrounds, from Muslim backgrounds have and, and have already shown a realization that they don't have access to the mainstream media. They don't have as much access to the mainstream media, right? So how can they talk about the things that they want to express uh, in the way that they want to express it, right? So one of the things that I loved about your dissertation, for example, is that you didn't just focus on the content, you focused on the producer, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the fact that people are not just consciously thinking about, oh, this content does not represent me. We need to create a different kind of content that speaks to us. But it's also about agency, and the producer having that ability to create content that they envision is representative of not just them, but also the communities that they come from. And then those same communities are the ones that engage in their uh, in their content in the form of being interviewed, in the form of, uh, you know, doing vox pops and things like that. So it's, it's, it's that space, that whole space of diasporic media represents that alternative platform for me. And I think those are, if we galvanize those opportunities and speak out and say, you know, this is what's going on in terms of if you want to uh, engage people, because this is another problem that I have. I, I remember when I was at the BBC and, he, and to a certain extent, even at The Guardian, these are the kind of issues that they would mention. They'd be like, yeah, but it do, you know, we want to be more representative, but where do we find them? You know, they don't call us in um, in the call in programs. They don't comment on the articles. That's where we normally find people that we can follow up and call and get, you know, invited and invite them as guests and whatnot. So how do we do that? And I told them, well, they're not frequenting your spaces. That means you need to go and frequent their spaces, mm -hmm. right? Because the fact that they're not coming here doesn't mean that they're not media active. They're active in their own media. And so I would give them platforms of, uh, you know, different diaspora communities. And, and as a result, you know, they, they increased their, the number of migrants that were involved in their programming uh, and that were interviewed, that were invited as guests from, from different ethnic backgrounds, you know, including the Somalis that uh, they thought were uh, less represented. And also people from Arab backgrounds, people that were, uh, you know, from Muslim minority backgrounds um, that, again, didn't have a great deal of uh, access to them, you know. So for, for me, this is what's important. It's like you, you don't necessarily have to have someone coming to your space but you engage with them at the spaces they already are occupying mm -hmm. as practitioners. Because then it means you're on equal footing, right? This person is exercising their agency, you're exercising your agency, and you're, you're meeting in the middle, right? Instead of getting this person to uh, come to your space and then you get them to adapt, mm -hmm. you know, that's not going to work as well as you getting them to uh, uh, share their own space with you, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the bridge building that needs to be encouraged sometimes. And you haven't been in mainstream media. Do you think you had, as a representative of what they say, minority, do you think you had an equal opportunity to those you were working with? I don't know. Um, I, I guess there's, I mean, there's some, there's some areas that you can clearly see there's something wrong here. But then on a day-to-day -day basis, I didn't get any pushback. In fact, all of the training that I uh, received on you know within the studio were from my colleagues you know there was no such thing as an orc I mean now there is but back in those days I'm talking about you know the early 2000s right there wasn't really a, a dedicated structured traineeship that you begin and follow through so it, it's it's much more about you know the uh, being at the mercy of your colleagues really and how much they want to uh, teach you and train you and and, and give you access to the different things that they are doing and different opportunities. And so I was very lucky in that sense, you know, where I had a re you know, really supportive colleagues that would be like, you know, okay, so there's a story coming up in that neighborhood. Uh, and there's an event going on over there. Take the recorder, take the microphone, go and see what you can do. And I'll be like really scared because I haven't done something like that before. But you know, you can rely on them in case you get stuck. Right. So you go out there, you record, you come back, 
they'll listen to and they'll be like, okay, so this part was great. This part was really good. You need to focus more on these areas. And so that constant feedback allows you to then get better and better and better, you know? So it's, it's, it was very complimentary to the stuff I was learning at uni, the stuff I was learning at college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was enhancing my theoretical understanding. And then the practical reality was, was uh, improving my practical skills. So for me, on a day-to-day basis, I didn't feel any pushback. But then when you look at the overall uh, period that you spend in a certain place, and at the BBC, for example, um, you see that, you know, other people who are from, uh, not from your background are being promoted before you, despite the fact that you've been there longer, despite the fact that you have more talent. I mean, there was a case I remember when, you know, there was a, a, a young lady that I had trained up who joined us, who joined us as a, as an intern. And, uh, and you know, she spent six months on my program and I trained her. And then when those six months ended, she was promoted to assistant producer and then became a producer before I became a producer. And I was like, that's very strange. I've been here for almost three years. And she managed to get the position I didn't get promoted to for three years in less than a year. Mm. Now, at face value, some people might say, well, it could be that you weren't just, you know, you weren't as good. It could be that, uh, you know, she was a quick learner and she was, you know, very adaptable. And and therefore, you know, sometimes people progress really quickly. It's not really much to do with gender or to do with race. You know, sometimes it's to do with competence. Yes. But then if you look at beyond me and you look at the overall uh, organization and the structure and the number of um, non-white people that have been promoted versus the number of uh, white people that have been promoted. The entire structure at that time had maybe over 60 people that were employed at different levels. And there, and there was only three black people that were there. Three non-white people, I would say, you know, so that includes the different ethnicities. And all of them were kept, two of them actually had held the same position for 30 years, right? Two of them held the exact same position for 30 years. Uh, and the other one was me. So that's what I mean, like by a pattern of, you know, when when you look at it uh, from a, a, a sort of bird's eye view and you take yourself out of the equation, how is it possible that 60 people work at an organization and all the white ones get to progress in, in different ways and, you know, and much more quicker? And then you have all the non-whites that get are held at certain positions for much longer. Uh, then, and so that's when you see the patterns of, how a structure is put in place to progress certain people over others. Right? How did you personally overcome that struggle? I left. <laughs> it's like cut it off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's alhamdulillah. When you're young, you know, you have the energy and the zeal to go and try different things, right? So you you don't have to necessarily push back uh, against an, a, you know, because what we're talking about is pushing back against an entire structure. So that would be a much more long-winded process of uh, you having to put in a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of energy. And the people that you're, you know, that you're dealing with are the people that have perpetuated this system, right? So it's you're not you're not necessarily in an in an advantageous uh, advantageous um, environment where you can reap the reward, right? So I figured that instead of pushing back, Alhamdulillah, there's plenty of activists, there's plenty of organizations that uh, uh, write about these things that active you know actively are engaged in campaigning against them uh, the best thing for me to do is to be rep- as as representative as i can be you know at that stage uh, in you know in 2000 2001 2002 there were you know there was a very very little presence of ethnic minorities in mainstream media and uh, particularly as from a Somali background, from a refugee background, those are the kind of areas that weren't, those are the kind of ethnicities and people that weren't really represented. So I figured, you know, the best thing for me to do is to see how how much I can utilize my platform in different uh, uh, media outlets, basically. And that's what I did. So I, uh, I got myself, you know, so I left the BBC uh, and then I went to work for the Leicester Mercury and that was much more regional, so it had a bigger reach. I went to work for The Guardian and again, that has a bigger reach. It's uh, it's much more diverse in terms of the people it attracts. I was doing documentaries. I was doing local radio stuff. I was doing uh, 
ITV stuff. So I did a couple of documentaries for Channel 4 at that time. I did some stuff with ITV. So from, I just put myself, you know, in, in as a flexible position as possible, right? So that I can utilize my own presence as, as much as possible. And, and I still believe that. I still hold that value where, you know, it's on one hand, you speak out against the system that is disproportionately uh, against ethnic minorities. And I think we're doing a lot better now. You know, if you look at Britain today in comparison to Britain 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it's doing a lot better now. Um, and I, But there's still a long way to go, right? And so, so what I try to do is to... Um, you know, uh, keep up with the with the areas where I can best fit in, uh, in terms of my own skill set and in terms of the areas that I'm passionate about. So now I I present a show on uh, Press TV uh, called Africa Today. So again, the reason why I took that position uh, is quite different to what you know the reasoning behind uh, when I was up and coming and took positions with the BBC, for example. Now it's much more about having uh having different having the voices that come from the continent that have a lived experience of being from that continent actually speaking about the issues of the continent that you know a lot of the problems that we're having now in relation to issues happening in Africa is that you have other voices trying to understand or trying to analyze what Africa ought to be right and so, you know, people like Melania that are like now, you know, let's go. And you remember, you know, Melania Trump went to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's things like that that you, it makes you think it's a bit cringeworthy, uh, if that makes sense. So for me now, I see as uh, one of the things that I can do positively is share my journalism profession with you know applied with me coming from from Africa and having covered the continent for a long time use that to actually shed light on the lived realities of the continent and the shift you've explained you left BBC and then you did a lot of other stuff now your your decisions are let's say you take other factors to make your decisions yeah. But when you started, you took quite some risk. I, do you, would you would you say you are a risk taker? And where are your red lines, if you have if you have any? Yeah, yeah I yeah I was having this conversation with my husband uh, a couple of days ago. Where he he called me that you know he was like oh you you take a lot of risk you know and I, I was like I don't see that as risky. And he was like it is risky because of X Y Z. And he would literally like lay that he would lay it down and he'd be like you know that's how normal human beings see it. Maybe you don't see it that way you know. Um, but I mean, alhamdulillah, I, I, I don't, I don't know if it's risky. I look at something uh, that's presented in front of me. If it's an opportunity, and I feel that I could do something useful with that opportunity, and it's going to enhance my experience, it's going to enhance my professional life or personal life, I tend to go with it. And if it works out, alhamdulillah, you know, if it doesn't work out, then that's just a pushback for you to navigate and pivot to somewhere else. Right. So that's how I just approach everything in life, really. Um, so I, I don't know if it's risky or not. What other things like characteristics would you say that have led you to where you are or especially to the different goals you had in your life? I think I'm quite tough on myself. And that's maybe a disadvantage as well as a, a, an advantage. I... It's very, it's very rare that I am happy with something I've done, something I've written, a show that I've produced, a documentary that I've made. I will always find all the bad aspects, all the bits and pieces that I could have done better. I mean, I, you know how you were saying earlier about you finally stopped hating your voice. Like yeah, I, yeah. It, it took me ages ages to not feel like I sound like an eight-year-old on radio literally it's like I, I would listen to myself and I'd be like no you just sound like a mature eight-year-old you sound like a child you sound like and you can't change your voice I mean there's you know you're born with it so you you try and do the best you can with it but it's not something you could take out and replace right so I, I think the the fact that I am constantly uh quite um critical of the things that I do means um, I am always in that perpetual mode of improvement, you know, so I'll find some stuff that I need to fix about whatever it is that I produced 
and I'll find you know and I'll keep fixing it and fixing it until I get to a point where I the deadline is either there so you have to just submit it or you know the show runs on and you really can't do anything else um or I get it to a stage where I'm like okay I'm content with it I'm not 100% happy but this is okay for now and then you could put it to bed and then you move on to the next bit so I think that con- that mindset has probably allowed me to con- to 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 always improve myself from where I was yesterday right but at the same time it's also a disadvantage because you never really you know enjoy the moment if that makes sense you don't sit down and say alhamdulillah this is brilliant I really like what I've done here (laughs) I don't do that you know I think I'm going to do that more often inshallah would you call yourself a perfectionist I don't know I I, I'm a pragmatist but I I like to see the, you know, especially if I have something in my head and it looks a certain way and I know I can do it. I, I want to get it to that level. So maybe I am describing a perfectionist. <laughs> I think <you> are. Right? <laughs> but what is a pragmatist? Uh, someone who looks at it from, uh, who looks at something from a, a realistic perspective. So if you have a situation where, uh, you know, you, you have to choose between one or two things, I'm not going to look for an unrealistic thing. Uh, option three right I'll go with the option that is uh, you know the most the, the least painful <laughs> but say, how right? who defines reality for me reality is staying true to my perception of reality right that's because that's the one that affects me the most I, I I'm a big fan of this idea that you know you you have your reality and then you have what the person what other people think of you, right? And then you have what you think they think of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And you can get really confused in that sense if you constantly try to focus on, oh, what is it that this person is thinking about me and that person and that person? It means that you never get a chance to really focus on what you think of yourself, you know? Um, How do you do that? I really zone out. I don't, uh, I, I don't care what other people think of me, uh, does that sound sound bad? For me, it sounds really good. It, I had to struggle with that for a long time. Okay. Especially when it comes to before Islam and after Islam mm-hmm. and how I view myself as well. Mm-hmm. So I think I am judging myself more than I'm creating my reality sometimes. Mm. And that's where I, I need to know how do you zone out? Okay. How do you do that? Well, if whatever you focus on means you aren't, by default disassociating yourself from whatever you're not focusing on right so it's this idea mm-hmm. of uh, you know what is red in this room pick on all the things that are red in this room that means by focusing and looking for whatever's red in this room you are not seeing all the other colors in the room right so it's this idea of of focusing on that one thing that you are uh, that you find important that you want to focus on and in my case uh, it's it's uh, it's always my relationship with Allah, and th- that's who I want to please in my life, in uh, the work that I do, in uh, uh, the, my engagement with people. You know, so it's it's it, it, by focusing on that on a day to day basis. And I mean, I'm talking about you know from a very practical perspective of making sure you get up in the morning for fajr. You know, you set the alarm. If you get up and you go back to sleep, you make sure you you know you set a ten minute interval, right, so that the alarm keeps going off, and then eventually you get pissed with yourself and you get out of bed, right, uh, and then you pray and you come back, uh, uh, you know, s- making sure that there is that the, your schedule is fitted around salah. So, for example, when I came in this the, to to see you this afternoon, I was late because I hadn't factored in <laughs> that Dhuhr is gonna come. At the same time as I need to leave the house in order to meet you on time, mm-hmm. right? Um, so for me, it's a case of uh, I'm not going to find the space to pray later on. And so let me pray now and tell Sina I'm going to be a bit late. So it's that, you know, you focus on your priorities. Mm-hmm. Everything else will fall in place. Do you navigate everything in your life like that? The business, uh, the things you do in, in, in your private life? Pretty much, yeah. I've because your life is guided. All aspects of your life are guided by Allah. So, it's my relationship with my husband. It's the food that I eat. So, 
I, in order for me to to live my life in a way that is pleasing to Ilahi, it, it means I have to nourish my body. It means I have to eat good food. It means I have to stay away from junk food. Sometimes I don't, you know, but it's that's the weakness of the human being, right? Uh, but, it, you know, it, it means that you have to read because that's literally in our Quran. And read, it doesn't say read just the Quran or read just the Sunnah and the Hadith and the Seerah and the Fiqh books. No, it says read in the name of your Lord, which means knowledge is what Allah wants us to attain, right? And so as that means the area that I've chosen as my professional career, I have to read up on it. I have to make sure that my competence is improved so I can be the best in my field, right? And so I read for the sake of that. Uh, I, I research for the sake of that. I speak about my research and analyze it for the sake of that. So whatever you do, you're doing it f- through this prism of getting closer to Ilahi, making sure you know you have, uh, you put in the effort, you do the pursuit, and the outcome is up to Allah. But you bring the pursuit to your life, to your uh, profession, to your relationship with your uh, with your spouse, to your relationship with your family. Um, so those, it's it, it's very easy, ah, not easy, uh, easy might not be the right word, but when you just have that one th- common thread that you focus on, it brings together all aspects of your life. How do you structure your work specifically when you say, for example, your schedules are around the Salah times? Mm. How do you structure your work in terms of keeping your productivity levels up? How do I structure it? Okay, so I have different aspects of my professional life now that I focus on different days. So I'm an academic researcher, I teach, uh, but I'm also a practicing journalist. Um, and I also need days where I dedicate to the things I want to do in the future. So one of those would be the online courses that I was telling you about. So what I do is I structure my week to accommodate for those different roles so that I don't get overwhelmed if I have to do them all in the same day, right? Um, I have two days that I dedicate to uh, the production of the show. So you need to come up with a proposal, which means you have to do the research for the news of that day, figure out the angles that you want to take. You want to make sure that the questions are prepared in advance, the people that you want to speak to, you check who's available, who's willing to speak. And you have one day that you take and record the show. So those are the two days that I would spend on on that are dedicated to the show. And then I've got two days that are dedicated to my research work. Uh, and so I would spend, if it's not teaching time, I would spend those two days, you know, reading up on the stuff that uh, the areas that are uh, the areas that my research falls in. I, I do a lot of the communication output for the research projects that I work on. So that means updating the website, updating the blogs, updating the social media platforms, writing uh, press releases, writing, writing uh, policy briefs for our funders you know, condensing the research papers from 60 pages to maybe three, four bullet points of uh, research briefs that are much more digestible to the wider public. Uh, So those are the kind of areas that I would focus on on the two days that I'm doing my my research. When it's teaching time, that becomes three days because then I have one day that is completely focused on teaching. So all the lectures, all my seminars, all my contact hours, student office hours, are done in that one day and I get it out of the way. So I, I make sure that it's structured in that way so that I can have days dedicated completely to that area that I need to focus on, which means when I'm working on the show, I'm not fussed about SOAS or any of the you know work that I do in terms of my research. But then when I'm focusing on my research, I'm not fussed about the journalism work that I'm doing, right? So that's how I try to balance it out. And then my weekend is when I focus on the things that I want to progress into. I think you have to wrap up. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to ask the last question. What advice would you have given your 20-year-old self? Don't be scared. That's it. When you're young, you're very um, scared of what the world is going to bring. So there's a lot of anxiety uh, of what you know, what you can do and what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do and just navigating life and you don't have an understanding of life so you're, you're walking into the unknown uh, so there's a lot there's a lot of fear uh, so I pr- I'll probably say that to myself don't be scared nice thank you so much for today and for taking so much time thank you it's been a real pleasure I haven't had this kind of discussion in a long <laughs> time so alhamdulillah thank I you have very you much. come back inshallah 
yeah, you're going to have to keep me posted on your next episode. For sure. And now, Idun and I would love to hear from you. We've talked about a lot of different topics today, but share with us the biggest insight you can take away from today's episode. And how can you bring these insights into practice? What is the first action step you can take to upgrade your business, projects, your career path, or simply your life? Head on to sharediversity.com and leave your comments down below. Share your diversity with us. So, see you next time. Assalamu alaikum. This is a special announcement. This interview has a bonus section. So go to the next episode and check it out. Idil will talk in depth about her work in diaspora media and what she does and aims to do in the field to create more opportunities for those who have been silenced or not giving the platform to speak. Head on there. Until next time. Assalamu alaikum.